0: This yes. is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell, but for many believers, money is not only not the root of all evil, it can be the path toward their salvation and making them closer to God. Sure, it says in First Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all of evil, but why let that stop practitioners of prosperity Christianity? Imagine having the ultimate faith in capitalism, and that is your faith in money is linked to your faith in God. That the more you outwardly display your wealth, the more you are signaling to your co-worshippers your close Relationship with the Almighty. Of course, to attain those kinds of divine riches, you may have to go into the same kind of debt that can also help your credit rating. Your debt goes up, you pay some off, your rating goes up, you collect more debt, and the cycle continues. But if that same credit rating logic were linked to a religious belief, the more you go into debt, the more you are revealing your faith in God your faith that God will save you from poverty and bring you to a land with far greater riches than milk and or honey. Prosperity Christianity is sweeping the globe, especially in places that face repeated crises with governments that lack social safety nets or have so deregulated their economy they have nothing to offer to citizens in the form of hope or a future. After well more than a half a century of civil war, 70 years of civil war, even more than that, Columbia Has become fertile ground for prosperity Christianity With little to no hope elsewhere Colombians have turned to their faith in God And prayer to deliver them from the daily violence that surrounds them Violence often fueled by the same kind of debt Followers are getting into to show their faith in God Today we return to Colombia to learn about prosperity Christianity And the violence of debt when we speak with religious studies scholar Rebecca C. Bartell, author of card carrying Christian's Debt in the Making of Free Market Spirituality in Colombia. Rebecca is Assistant Professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Associate Director for the Center for Latin American Studies at San Diego State University. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter at rebeccabartel 20 Rebecca bartel 20 I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live-streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show, well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood, Richard, what's new about you?
1: Chuck, I have a confession to
0: make. Uh Uh-oh. Will you be my confessor? (laughs) Yes, I will be. Can we put up a screen between us?
1: (laughs) I use the self-checkout machine
0: at the grocery store. Oh, you (laughs) son of a bitch. (laughs) Don't do that. You're taking jobs from people.
1: Well, you know, um, because I'm such an introvert, Uh I love it because I don't have to interact with people.
0: (laughs) Is that what that line really is? Exactly. It's just a line of introverts? You wouldn't be able to find out. You can't really ask other people around you, right? Exactly. We all are in our little uh, bubble. bubble yes. <laughs> Anything else you want to
1: add? Yes, I'd like to give a little thanks to Get On, Get In. Yeah. For his kind words
0: Yeah, it's got a great uh, fan letter from Gidden last week He sent me some pills for my back pain And said that he absolutely loves Richard Norwood So thanks Gidden, for the back medicine For the letter and your appreciation of Richard Norwood I uh, heard the most paranoia-inducing Fear-mongering ad For a pharmaceutical drug last night, Richard I have no idea what the drug is But it was your typical commercial, you kind of block out where they're telling you all the symptoms of some illness or disease or disorder, rattling off everything. So there's no way you have not experienced one of those symptoms. Like uh, they were saying shortness of breath, fatigue, itching, depression, dizziness, coughing, aching joints, joints, dry mouth, stomach pain, cough, fever, every possible symptom. So you will stop and say... Hey, my hand did itch the other day. Maybe I do have whatever this disease is. And by that time, you've missed the name of the disease, and all you might remember is the name of the drug, which is probably their intent. But this ad had a couple of lines, Richard, near the very end that were spectacular in manipulating the audience. The ad stated, If you don't think you have it, you probably do. And if you do... Gotcha! You probably have it worse than you think. If you don't think you have it, you probably do. And if you do, you probably have it worse than you think, which is absolutely stunning. In case you do not have one of the myriad of symptoms we have listed, which would suggest you do not have this disorder, that mere suggestion suggests you probably do have this disorder. And if you do, which you likely do because you don't think you have it, it's even worse because you don't think you have it. This implies the only people on top of treating whatever this disorder was were those who agreed they have it already and were treating it with the advertised drug everyone else is in denial now that's advertising more importantly than any of that richard what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience
1: question from hell is what got you kicked out of the commune
0: <laughs> what got you kicked out of the commune and
1: my answer is i switched the contents of the salt and sugar containers <laughs>
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice. So you're just pranking people at the commune? No wonder they kicked you out. Uh, The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. What got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? Again, like I was saying earlier, you can email us, DM us via Twitter, message us through Facebook, or you can just send us you know, stuff through the mail by addressing it. To this is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Don't send us your answers to the question from Hell that way because we'll never get them in time. But uh, you can uh, send, just send us stuff. Uh, you can send us you know, guest suggestions, topic you know, topics for ideas for the show. We got a guest suggestion from George H. George has sent great guest suggestions in the past, including. Suggesting Julio Derrico, co author of the Roar magazine article, resisting Greece's rapid descent into authoritarianism, who he had on uh, the show last month. And Julio explained how the Greek government police crackdown on university campuses was actually something the United States had been requesting, demanding, the U.S. Embassy had been demanding it, upon the Greek government since 2006. This time, George writes, Chuck, I think you should invite Doug Henwood as a guest on This Is Hell to discuss the April Jacobin magazine article, Take Me to Your Leader, the Rot of the American Ruling Class, where he details what has traditionally constituted the ruling class and how it is changing. He feels that our traditional elite is breaking down and that is leading to dangers, but also opportunities for the left. His selection of illustrations for this article... Was fun too. The two page spread from the official Preppy Handbook brought back memories of my days in private high school in the early 1980s. Always enjoy your show, George. So, George, as you may know, as many of our listeners may know, Doug has been on This Is Hell several times over the year, probably like close to a dozen. Most recently, Doug was on back in January of 2018 to discuss an article he wrote with Liza Featherstone. And that is Wall Street isn't the answer to the pension crisis, expanding Social Security is, which was posted at In These Times. Unfortunately, the online version of Doug's Jacobin article that you cite does not include the illustrations that apparently accompanied the story in the print version of Jacobin, which sucks because I wanted to see the two-page spread from the official preppy handbook. Thanks for the suggestion, George, and we'll put Doug on the list for an upcoming show. Martin also sent a comment on a recent interview Dear Chuck, I was listening to your interview with Adolfo Minka uh, last month and I guess I have a little trouble wrapping my head around the idea of completely abolishing prisons. If we got rid of capitalism, wouldn't there still be violent crime? Wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society? I would very much like to see you have a guest on who could explain the, these things, if not a doFO, then maybe someone else. Or if you could point me to a past interview that got into that discussion more than this one did. Thank you for all the hard work you do and what you put into the show, while I'm probably not nearly as far left as you. Or your guests, I still find your shows very informative And they have opened my eyes to a lot of the problems in the world All the best, Martin Martin, first of all, don't worry about that stupid political spectrum stuff Just find your own politics and don't worry about them being What direction they're in Yeah, just don't worry about that stupid more left stuff But those are really good suggestions And I never thought of before, Martin But if anyone has topic ideas in the form of questions that you would like to have answered send your questions and we'll see if we can find someone who can answer them or if other listeners may know someone who can and martin i do not know who can answer your questions of prison abolition and if we get rid of capitalism wouldn't there still be violent crime wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society i don't know listeners if you know somebody who would be good to answer that question send us your suggestions And listeners, if you do have those suggestions, please send them along soon So we can get to what is being discussed here, what Martin was asking about By the way, Martin is referring to our April 29th interview with St. Louis Assistant Public Defender Adolfo Minka Who was on to discuss his Black Agenda Report article Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis City Justice Center And I strongly suggest that those of you who have not heard that talk Go back and listen to it, or if you did Hear it again because Adolfo blew me away. If you are interested in the Jackson Rising movement, which Adolfo was a part of, and I stress was, he takes shots at that movement for not living up to what Adolfo saw as its incredible potential. And it makes me want to go back and find out what's happening with that movement. Adolfo also suggests that if you're an anti-capitalist who is signing a million-dollar book deal, then you must be doing something wrong because capitalism is rewarding you for what you do. That success in capitalism For an anti-capitalist In Adolfo's view That's failure In other words I can wallow in my financial misery With the knowledge that I am Being truly anti-capitalist Or I can enjoy all the luxuries of life And never look at myself in the mirror again See we told you this is hell Another listener who has sent A large amount of Incredible guest suggestions Tom G Writes to us saying Hi Chuck this the this, this the blacksea.eu article in that website is the blacksea.eu article black trail how to kill the planet and get away with it by Craig Shaw and Zeynep Shentek is intriguing and alarming and I expect the documentary film about to be released is hellish as well perhaps even hellish enough to for the authors to be guests on this is hell. Tom then links the article in which Craig and Zeynep. They explain Black Trail is our year-long investigation and documentary into how shipping pollutes the planet, avoids taxes, dodges regulations, and gets away with it. For the past year, a team of journalists from the European Investigative Collaborations Network produced Black Trail, a documentary project which was released by the Black Sea and Partners earlier this month. Black Trail delves into the shipping industry's efforts to hide from the climate debate, regulations, and taxation. All this comes at a cost. This multi trillion dollar industry produces a massive amount of greenhouse gases, which causes climate change and toxins that cause thousands of deaths each year in coastal regions, port towns, and cities. Uh, this sounds absolutely amazing, Tom. Fantastic. I can't wait to actually see this film. And listeners, we often feature authors of books like we are on today's show or articles. On our show, but we'd like to give more airtime to filmmakers and feature more discussions on documentaries. So, if you can answer Martin's questions again, if we got rid of capitalism, wouldn't there still be violent crime? Wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society? Or you have, if you have suggestions for films and filmmakers to be featured here on This Is Hell, please email us at hell dot com. DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio or message us via Facebook at Facebook dot com. Slash This Is Hell Radio. Coming up, Prosperity Christianity and its role in Colombia's ongoing violence. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, "What got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune?" I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is Hell. As we discussed on Monday's show, Colombia is in the midst of its most violent uprising in years. Suffering from 70-plus years of civil war and internal fighting, Colombians have found little to turn to in their time of need. With a government and country destabilized by war, many Colombians turned to their faith, for it was the only place they could find any hope for a better, brighter future in a new post-war Colombia here to help us understand what happens when faith is tied to debt, and debt brings hope, as well as misery and violence. Religious studies scholar Rebecca C. Bartel is author of Card-Carrying Christians, Debt in the Making of Free Market Spirituality in Colombia. Welcome to This is Hell, Rebecca.
2: Hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being on. This is a Fascinating book. Uh, you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at Rebecca 20 Now, you had no idea that this ongoing violence, and I, I don't want to just be focusing on uh, the ongoing violence, obviously, we want to talk about your book, but you had no idea that this <laughs> ongoing violence was going to be taking place right now, that this would be a news story as your book was being released. Or did you? Were you certain that the fact that there was going to be violence going on in Colombia at the time? <laughs>
2: no no this is this is actually quite unexpected and you know i was actually in colombia two weeks ago um in the midst of the very beginnings of all of the violence going on my my father-in-law unfortunately passed away and so we made a trip down to bogota and he died two days before sort of the the beginning of the massive um protests and strikes so we were right smack in the middle of it um and so got sort of firsthand, firsthand um, you know, proximity to to what was going on into the protests that were happening, that yeah. are still happening. Yeah,
0: right? they're still happening, going on now for weeks with more yeah. than 40 people who have been killed. And we'll get back to that violence in a bit, but I really want to focus on your book because it ties into that violence, which is just- Absolutely. This, it's, this is just an amazing concept that and nobody else is discussing when it comes to what is taking place in Colombia. You start by describing a conversation you had with Fernanda. Uh, yeah. She said that she, is, uh, she was sitting across from you at this coffee shop at the MIC. I don't want to try to ruin my pronunciation. Let's see. Mission <laughs> Charismatica Internacional Campus. Thank well
2: done. Yes, yes, very good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Three years of horrible Spanish grades, and look what
2: happened. There happens. you go. Look at look at that. Yeah, I mean, I had I had lived in Colombia for eight years. I did my master's degree down there, and I worked in human rights for a number of years before starting my PhD. And so I was familiar with these mega churches that were increasingly growing. I got to Colombia in two thousand one, just the beginning of the Uribe administration, and you'll hear that name—that the former president who is. Behind the scenes, doing a lot of puppeteering right now, um, and part of the reason that the kind of fascist mafia state um, action that we're seeing in Colombia is really a, a, a an on you know a, an ongoing thing that's been going on since since Uribe and even before that. But just when I got to Colombia, um, religious freedom had been constituted in the. You know, for 10 years, no more than that, until 1991 with the new constitution, uh, Catholicism was the only officially recognized religion in Colombia. And after that constitution, uh, that constitutional reform, there is a proliferation of all kinds of different kinds of Christianity and religious kind of expression and mega churches these evangelical sometimes called neo-pentecostal churches and when i say mega church i'm talking about any church that has more than a thousand members but this particular church that you're talking about where Ferrenda was and where i spent a lot of time doing research has around twenty thousand people coming through its doors on any given sunday throughout its seven services on you know on the weekend um, so we're talking thousands of people coming through the doors of this church. And Fernanda was a person that I spent a lot of time with during my ethnographic field work. And she one day had, I, you know, I was in church with her as she was, you know, I was spent a lot of time in these services where she had given a tithe. She'd given an offering on her credit card. And after the service, we were having coffee, as you mentioned, and I asked her, did you go into debt for God? And she said, well, yes, of course. Debt is a sign of faith. And that was a moment in the research where I was like, well, there's something going on here that's that's really interesting and really problematic.
0: Sure, interesting and problematic, but it's important to understand that the attraction, to the person who wants to go into that debt, not that they are just being duped, you know, that exactly. this, this exactly. is just some kind of con game. So, what is the attraction of putting yourself into a position that is harm, potentially harmful to you, debt, in order to practice or experience your faith? Is this an extension of Christian martyrdom?
2: Well, that's a really, thanks for asking that question. I think so many people make this really quick conclusion like oh well this is some sort of perversion of christianity oh you know this is these christians are wrong they're doing christianity wrong and um and i and i think what's important to preface this you know what i'm you know how i'm going to answer your question is to say Christianity, you know, there's no data for, Christ. there's no, there's no pure Christianity. There's no um, essential Christianity, as much as many Christians would like to say that there is. Right. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, when we, when I think of Christianity, think of it as a concept. Think of Christianity or any kind of religious tradition or expression as something that operates as a matrix of power in symphony with other forms of power and social and cultural and historical context. Right. And so in the context of Colombia, um, these, this kind of prosperity Christianity, it's very different than the kind of prosperity you Christianity you might see in the U S right. You might see in Joel Austin's church, right? <laughs> like it's, it's a little different because as I say in the book, it's coming from oftentimes, um, It's a recipe for survival rather than ostentation, right? For a lot of people, this kind of faith in the market, this kind of faith in debt, in the financial system, isn't only being preached in the churches. It is being preached by all of the structures of power that are trying to financialize Colombia's economy right? So this is a, my book is a critique, not only of Christianity, but of course of a financial capitalist system. So is it an extension of Christian martyrdom? I don't see it that way, the way I see it actually, because no one, no one, Fernanda, for example, isn't saying I'm going into debt and I know that this is going to hurt me, right? That this could lead to ruin. I'm going into debt because I think, and I believe that this is what God wants me to do, right? This is what is going to lead to my prosperity. And again, when I say prosperity here in the context of Colombia, I'm talking about survival, not big screen TVs and private jets. I'm talking about being able to pay the rent, right? And in many ways, actually, that's not that different than how financial capitalism and debt works everywhere. How many people do we know who go into debt to buy groceries, right?
0: Exactly, and this is the kind of conversation I really enjoy, by the way, Rebecca, because (laughs) I I had written down dozens of questions and now those answers brought up like another half dozen questions so this is <laughs> this is the kind that I can learn the most from you mentioned Joel Osteen and this kind of prosperity Christianity we have here in the United States you mentioned how this all started back in the 1950s with Oral Roberts but then when that process got exported to the rest of the world how it, it was changed when it came to Brazil when it came to South Korea wherever it went it changed it morphed into something else is, is it that and so, almost to the point where it's unrecognizable to the American version. So, is it that survival aspect of it, the desperation aspect of it, is that what changed this prosperity Christianity from what was made by Oral Roberts back in the fifties?
2: Well, in a way, yeah. Um, but I, but I want to reframe that statement a little bit by. Decentering the American exceptionalism and the assumption that prosperity Christianity is some sort of a U.S. export, right? Um, sure, there. The, you know, the, the prosperity gospel as and you know a book that might be really interesting to your listeners to to get a really good history of the prosperity gospel as it evolved in the U.S. is "Blessed" by Kate Bowler. She's at Duke University. She traces the history of the prosperity gospel in the U.S. back to the 19th century new thought movement of you know um, Phineas Quimby and sort of the idea that if we think something, it will materialize, right? It's sort of like the secret, right? Like you put out into the world what you want to get back, right? And, and that and that influences all kinds of um, you know movements into you know the 1920s into um, the you know the initial kind of beginnings of. Um, multi-level multi, uh, marketing, which is another topic that I I, I address in, in my book and how that looks in Colombia, which looks a little bit different than it does in the U.S. But the idea that like, if, if you believe something enough and if you put out, and we hear this all the time, oh my gosh, listen to Oprah sometime, right? Like you put out into the world what you want to get back, right? And so if you put out into the world, this belief that you not necessarily deserve, but you, just like all of the wealthy, well-to-do people that you see on TV and you see in, in the context of Bogota, in like many Latin, most Latin American big cities, this cohabitation of extreme wealth alongside extreme poverty is so close, right? Like you can't avoid seeing that on a day-to-day basis. And so you as a person who might not have the kind of wealth that you see um, the people who live in the north part of the city have, there might, you know, there's there's a bit of a like, well... A dignified life is something that I deserve also, not ostentatious wealth, but a dignified life, education for my kids, a job where I can rely on a steady income, the ability to pay my rent, the ability to move around the city, the ability to, um, you know, make sure that my kids have a, you know, a a solid future and can, you know, go ahead and study in the university, those kinds of expectations. That's what I mean by survival. So it's not necessarily that desperation that you talk about, because I, I think that but outside of the U.S., prosperity, Christianity, it looks very different depending on the context that you're in. And the mission, the charism- charismatic mission, the Mission Charismatica Internacional, um, the, the inspiration for the way in which Pastor César Castellanos, who's the main pastor of the church. His inspiration is less tied to the kind of theology that Joel Osteen preaches and more tied to sort of the Yoido full gospel church in South Korea, which is the world's largest prosperity megachurch. And the way in which that prosperity gospel is inspired is very rooted in um, the idea of, you know, realization, right? Sort of this new thought kind of idea, but also, you know, some Buddhist elements of, you know, um, putting into practice what you want to see in your life. And in Colombia, the way that Pentecostal Christianity has evolved is as much hybrid and tied into indigenous spirituality and indigenous practice and Catholic practice. So the idea that prosperity Christianity is something that is exported from the U.S. and, you know, and and then is sort of modified, is a little bit of a misnomer because prosperity gospel in Colombia believes in miracles. Catholicism is all about miracles. Prosperity gospel in Colombia believes in making pacts with God through money and other material things. Catholicism has been doing this forever. One of the reasons that the Protestant Reformation happened, one of the, you know, the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door was, you know, the, the outrage over indulgences and and sort of the, the, the corruption in the, the Catholic Church. These So these things have been going on for a long time. So it's not, not a purely American version of Christianity that's been exported into the world that's tied to capitalism in this really unique way. Capitalism, as we know, and Christianity also create these very particular matrices of power that operate in specific ways in specific parts of the world. So that that's a very long answer to your question, but I hope that clarifies a little bit.
0: It no, it does, and it perfectly leads into my next question. Is because you were you've been you mentioned this before that of Christianity as power. And that sounds like a political movement. Does prosperity Christianity politicize Christianity or has Christianity always been
2: politicized? Oh, I think Christianity has always been politicized. I think, I think, um,
0: because the a think- combination of the two things. I can see how this turns into a political, you know, more of a political movement than I don't want to say that. I was going to say more of a political movement than maybe Catholicism was beforehand, but I don't even want to say that.
2: No, no, don't say that because remember, you know, Catholicism was so central to the conquest of the Americas, right. right? I mean, Catholicism was a very particular sort of Iberian, Spanish, Portuguese Catholicism was essential to. The development and establishment of a kind of capitalism that has proliferated in Latin America um, from you know the time you know from the 15th century on, right? I mean, if you think about the, the development of capitalism, um, it's sort of industrial capitalism in Europe and North America. Like, you need to be able, to, you need to think about colonialism as part of that story, right? We have to be, we have. Have to be aware of that, and we have to be aware of. Uh, I think, as as a scholar of religion, as an anthropologist of religion, and capitalism, we need to be aware of the the um, the failings of of you know analyses like Max Weber, who only tied capitalism to Protestantism, and he was really right in a lot of you know obviously in in a lot of uh, what he was analyzing. He didn't take into account you know, the 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 role that slavery and colonialism and the religious power structures that existed in those, you know, hundreds of years leading up to sort of the Industrial Revolution, that Catholicism played a really central role. And so to think of Catholicism um, as, you know, to think of Catholicism as somehow completely separate from Protestantism, I think is a mistake. Um, and to think, you know, to think of, um Christianity as, as something that is one thing or another is also really problematic. I mean there are over 30,000 different denominations of Christianity in the world, right? So you, you know the, you've, you've got to be able to think of this phenomenon as, as, as you know more than just something that's political or not. Um, but that ties together and and enters into relationship with local, um, endogenous structures of of power of oppression, but also liberation. I mean, let's let's not forget that there's a really strong Christian, you know, Catholic movement for liberation in Latin America that's been, you know, inspiration for you know for all kinds of liberation movements, right? Um, that's that's very overtly anti-capitalist, at least in its at least in its discourse, right? So so there is a theology that. A lot of Christianity and a lot of Christians and Christian theologians would adhere to which would which would say that Christianity is the religion, the anti capitalist religion par excellence, right, like you mentioned in your introduction, Timothy something. I'm not very good at quoting scripture. Neither am I. I had
0: to look it up. Don't
2: worry. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like there's enough in there, there's enough in the scripture that you can really defend an anti capitalist kind of position. You know, you, 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 and, and I'm, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez did that, and all the liberation theologians have been doing that for a long time. Um, but, but if we think of Christianity as a polemical concept, that's that's language that Jill Andazar uses and, and Ruth Marshall and, and other scholars. to to think of it as something that's not that doesn't exist too generous like it's not something that exists out there and we like we're like oh i'm gonna take a little bit of christianity you know like that that's not how religion works religion is always embedded within our economic and political and social systems and um part of the point of the book was to say it seems that a lot of a lot of scholarship separate these two worlds the economy and religion as though economics would pervert this sacred space of the religious or that religion would bring some sort of irrational belief structure to economics, which is so rational, which obviously we know is nonsense, right? Um, and, and, and so secular, right? Like there's, there, it's, it's something that exists outside of human decision-making. The market operates on its own like some, the invisible hand, right? Um, which is such a religious idea. That is such it's such a it's such a religious idea that the invisible hand of the market is somehow this benevolent force that's balancing everything out. So I don't even know where we began with that question. Sorry. <laughs>
0: that's okay. You know, so just, just following up on that though, this I you know, there's this idea that everything is political, and that's something that people don't recognize far too often. Mm. That they don't recognize that economic policies are political. They think that that's outside of politics somehow. That that is objective do we make the same mistake in not recognizing that everything in fact is religious
2: <laughs> this is a conversation i have with my students all the time right because you get to a point in the semester where they're like well what's not religious professor Bartel? like <laughs> if like if everything's religious then what's the point and it's like well no oh no. listen religion is a social construct like everything you know like like so many other things and what does that mean it doesn't mean it's not real it doesn't mean it doesn't have um impact it doesn't mean it doesn't Shape our lives, right? There's a materiality to religion, of course, but what it does mean is that if it is constructed by us, just like the economy is, then we can change it, right? And I and I think that's that's the important point here. So if it's sure, it's political. Yes, um, is religion always political? Is everything religious? <laughs> I mean. N- yes and no what's important to understand is to and to analyze is where are these points of belief that hold up violent structures right where is it that our reliance and our conviction that the economy must run in a certain way when that when that begins to put people's lives at risk, or literally kill people, which is what's going on in Colombia right now. Over 60 people have been killed. Over 600 people have been disappeared by the armed forces. We have over 1,000, you know, um, uh, cases of police brutality, violence, people who have been hurt. is going on right now in Colombia, and it's directly tied to the conviction of some that certain economic policies are more important than human life. And that is what I call necrophile. Finance. That is what I call necrofinance. That is the dark underside of financial capitalism. And that is entirely, I think, connected to a system of belief.
0: And that system of belief is neoliberalism. And as you quote Hayek in your uh, piece, (laughs) it mentions how this is essentially, I'm going to be paraphrasing here, uh, neoliberalism is an abandonment of the people, of the public, of social services, of a social safety net, and instead of a focus on the market. So from the very beginning, was neoliberalism understood as that abandonment of the people and putting profits before people as a prioritization?
2: Well, I think that probably Hayek and Friedman and everyone who's come, you know, come after the neoliberal you know, Chicago boys, the 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 exercise of neoliberalism in Latin America. Um, it, I don't know if 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 Hayek would have so openly you know, said the priority is, is you know wealth as opposed to people because i think that there was probably a belief that if we let the market operate freely if we if we if we roll back the the influence of the state if we if we roll back you know any social security net it, if if we if we create more space for the operation of free enterprise I, you know i'm sure that there was there was, there was a, a belief on some level that this was actually going to do good in the long term. Um, but in, in the way in which it, it's it's rolled out in Latin America, I mean Chile 1973. This this is the first neoliberal experiment in Latin America, right? The overthrow of the Allende government, the installation of the Pinochet dictatorship propped up by the CAA, and then the you know, the, the the entrance of the Chicago boy, I mean, you know this history, right? Um, sort of economic reform process that began. And that has that has trickled into experiences throughout Latin America. So neoliberalism has always been accompanied by violence in Latin America. Um, and what we're seeing today in Colombia is 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 just a furthering of uh of this kind of prioritization of Not just um, economic wealth and private, you know, the private accumulation of wealth. In Colombia, there are some people, um, a small elite, who own the vast majority of the land in the country, the vast majority of the resources. A lot of that is by is owned by, you know, foreign um, foreign corporations. Foreign direct investment is a major element of the encroachment of neoliberalism into Latin America and the extraction of natural resources, for example, um, for the benefit of North American and European shareholders. But um, the, the elite in Colombia have always, have always um, sought out policies and military responses to efforts of resistance and, and greater distribution of wealth. This is the reason that there's been a war going on for 70 years. Actually, you could you could trace the violence in Colombia back to you know to, to the establishment of the republic. Within those 200 years, there's been about 20 years total of so-called peace, right? Um, there's always been violence in in that sense, and not that Colombians are violent. Let's not make that mistake. That's not what's going on here. Um, Colombia is a unique geopolitically positioned country that has always had a lot of foreign interest, including a lot of U.S. interest. And the U.S. has been central. U.S. foreign policy has been central to the proliferation and the prolongation of the armed violence in Colombia, in part because of the economic um, uh, fallout of of the vast natural resources that might have, you know, been distributed and in, in in different ways. So the seven U.S. military bases in Colombia that are there right now—seven military bases in one country, forty million people—that's almost the you know the population of California, right? That's a lot of U.S. military bases, <laughs> you know. Um, and and we, we we could talk about Plan Colombia and in, in really overt U.S. Political interests in Colombia, but um, the Hayek probably wasn't imagining the this you know the, the particular situation of Colombia. But neoliberalism in Latin America has always been accompanied by violence.
0: So neoliberalism brings violence. The how much is the United States, and I want because I want to make sure I don't take agency away from the Colombian people. How much is the United States responsible for that project of neoliberalism?
2: I mean, how much? I mean, do you want to, I, I mean, I don't like a percentage. I don't yeah, know, yeah. but I you know, but the, I mean the US has always been interested in in, in Colombia's um, geopolitical position as sort of the entryway into South America by land, by sea. Um, Colombia, I think, was always a concern on the radar of uh, of US foreign. Policies, especially during the Cold War era, when there were all of these, you know, insurgency movements throughout Latin America, um, Colombia received significant military support from the U.S. throughout the 20th century. But most, you know, prominently with the establishment of Plan Colombia, right? And that's 2001. Um, 2000, 2001, the end of the Pastrana regime. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, were um, gaining a lot of a lot of um, strength. A lot of. Uh, influence throughout the country, and there was concern in the U.S. that this would spill over, and the FARC could take over as a, you know, a communist um, sort of insurgency movement that would take over the government, as we, you know, had had been seen in other places in Latin America. Plan Colombia was uh, a multi-billion-dollar military aid project that that also. Uh, had some humanitarian aid tied to it, but most of it was tied to military support. So, um, you know, training for military, um, ammunitions, weapons, um, helicopters, so on and so forth. But a lot of it was was tied to protecting U.S. interests in Colombia, like the protection of oil pipelines, like the Canyon Limon oil pipeline that runs throughout through the country, um, bringing oil you know to to export on the on the coast. Ninety million dollars was devoted to protecting that oil pipeline from guerrilla attacks, right, because the guerrilla had been attacking that oil. So that's just one example of the ways in which, um, you know, U.S. foreign policy has directly affected the armed conflict in Colombia. Another example would be um, fumigations of coca plantations, right? Like all, a lot of what the Plan Colombia was designed for, it was it was a counterinsurgency, but also uh, counter-narcotic foreign policy and when you when you fumigate coca plantations you also fumigate everything else so you kill people's crops entirely and when you kill people's crops it takes a lot of time to re-establish you know your plantain your yucca your manioc your potato whatever you're growing and coca is really easy to grow and you know, and that that makes it a, an attractive kind of cash crop. And so, what you do then, you create sort of a balloon effect where you squeeze one part of the balloon, and another part of the balloon blows up. Um, you've got you, you're going to continue to have sort of narco um, narco production throughout the country, no matter how much you're, no matter how much you're um, fumigating. But the U.S. <laughs> since the Monroe Doctrine, nineteenth century. The U.S. has been interested in keeping Latin America, you know, operating in a way that's amenable to U.S. foreign interests. So how much is the U.S. responsible for the prolongation of the armed conflict in Colombia? I can't tell. I couldn't say how much, but significantly, right? Significantly, only because that's the relationship that the United States has with Latin America.
0: And you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation how uh, you referred to the Colombian government as a, as a fascist state and you touched on deregulation as you do in your book. And I want to make sure that we touch on that as well. And you, you write how your book is an exploration of the relationship between capital and Christianity and the ways that debt connects these spheres of social practice imbricated, that is, overlapped in different ways through acts and practices of deregulation. How do preachers of the Columbia Mega Church that you were at, the MIC, MCI, uh, how much uh, do they? How do they connect Christianity with deregulation?
2: Well, this goes back to the Constitution of '91, where you get this deregulation of religion, in a way. Right? So you've you've up until 1991 you've got only Catholicism as the recognized religion uh, in the country, and after that you've got sort of an open religious market. I really hate I, I yeah sorry I'm gonna scratch that religious market is is a language I, I don't really like to use, but um, you've you've kind of got open season. So any you know any religious tradition any religious organization can register. Um, as a recognized religious institution, and so you know this freedom of religion, right? And so that that is um, part of the deregulation. But also, with this particular kind of prosperity Christianity, it also this is also a, a, a response to sort of the the idea that prosperity Christianity is an export from the U.S. Well, you know, which in, in a lot of cases it is, but um, in it's it's also very much these churches are are independent churches they're not connected to any sort of overarching denomination they're taking ideas from all over the place they're creating a really hybrid kind of uh of faith uh practice that that is that is deregulated from an overarching denominational um set of doctrine right so it's very it's different in so far as like the vatican is this overarching structure that most, you know, Catholicism kind of all, you know, relates back to, to the doctrine that's coming out of the Vatican? These these mega churches operate in in a much more deregulated kind of way. Deregulated also insofar as you know these churches, you know, there's there's they're they're tax free in the same way that. Um, You know, religious organizations in the U.S. are also taxed, you know, don't pay taxes in that sense. So also deregulated in that very kind of real kind of way. And so the money that's going into these churches is not being traced. It's not being tracked in the way that it was in a business. Um, And that creates sort of a black hole in trying to figure out how much money is actually moving through these churches, Um, which is which is something that is, uh, I think, You know really interesting given that in many of these churches you can you can go they have a credit card machine right there you just make your payment it goes directly into a bank account and i tried to interview you know those (laughs) those bankers and there's there it's 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 completely private and so there's no way to sort of regulate um how that money is coming and going
0: so you also uh, mentioned that uh, the Cesar uh, Castellanos, who is mm-hmm. a preacher at the Church MCI, and he asks his believers, do you believe in financial resurrection? And you add yeah. finance operates through aspirations. The plasticity of the human subject in late capitalism and promises a new becoming, a resurrection. And you point out that finance dwells in the realm of speculation and possibility, just as ideals of prosperity are tied to wages made on faith and credit. So are speculation and religion then both based on faith? Therefore, those who are willing to put their faith into a religion are willing to speculate. Do the religious also have a gambling problem? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, that's funny. No, I mean, I think, oh, that's, that's a great question. So I I guess um, (laughs) the speculation, I mean, you know, how finance, you know, is operating in this, like putting bets on future returns. Right. And in a way that is exactly what is happening in, in, in these churches where people are using credit cards to make financial covenants with God, right? Um, and, you know, the plasticity of the human subject, that what, I'm, what I mean by that in, in late capitalism is that, you know, we, we are being formed by these economic structures that have, that have, that have kind of taken over our social worlds, right? And, and the, the practice of tithing on credit with money you don't have, Betting on some sort of a future return is is a, is a form of speculative faith, right? Um, and in a way, I think I think Christianity has done that for a really long time. Uh, I don't, again, I don't think that is something that is entirely specific to prosperity Christianity. What's specific about these kinds of prosperity Christians that I was spending time with? is that they were using credit cards, that, the fi- that there was a financialization of faith, right? Um, and don't we all do that a little bit, right? I mean, don't we all, when we're using credit, when we're using our credit cards, if you use your credit card, maybe as you were saying in the introduction, you're talking about, if you're, if you're big, ba- you know, gaining the benefits of capitalism and you're an anti-capitalist, you know, you're failing and, and, and maybe, you know, and, and I think that's totally right. Um, but, but isn't, is credit is always a practice of belief, right? Credit, Using your credit card, going into debt—that there's always there's always the assumption, the belief, the aspiration that you're going to get yourself out of that, right? Um, and that the you know the, the, there's some sort of a, an investment or it's good debt or what have you, or you'll be able to pay it off later. Um, there, there there's a there's a bit of a there's a bit of a gambling um, issue that we all are kind of implicated in, in a a system of financial capitalism.
0: And you also point out the fastest growing sector in Colombia's economy is the financial sector, which now makes up almost a quarter of Colombia's gross domestic product. Credit cards and their aspirational polls produce disciplinary orders that are underwritten by a distinctly Christian morality in Colombia. So how dependent then is Colombia's economy on Faith. What would happen if Colombia's all, all of a sudden lost their faith in prosperity Christianity? What would happen to the economy?
2: Well, if if people lost their faith in prosperity Christianity, uh, I think you'd probably get a different religious system that would pop up that would be, uh, you know, tightly and intimately embedded with the financial system. the 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 dismantling of prosperity Christianity or this kind of financialized capitalism, um, those two things go together, right? Like I think prosperity Christianity will exist as long as financial capitalism is, exists and financial capitalism relies on a certain kind of, of faith system that, that props it up. I mean, look, you know, if you look, if we look at the you know, the 2008, um, crash, so a lot of, a lot of what, what happened there, I mean, obviously, you know, complex and, 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 and you know, a whole other conversation to have, but, but people lost their faith in the financial system. You know, banks lost their faith. People pulled out, people sold, people, you know, th- this, this was in part the, the shaky ground upon which all of these, um, you know, subprime loans and, and predatory lending was, it was, all, it was all built on a house of cards. And when that house of cards falls, you, you know, you have, you have a financial crisis. So if people stop believing in financial uh, prosperity, Christianity, I mean, will that mean that people will take out fewer credits? I'm not sure, but I don't think that these two things can exist without each other.
0: And you also mentioned that easy credit, sparse financial education, abundantly accessible credit cards, subprime lending, a stable investment-grade credit rating, relative political stability, and limited financial regulation have been the secret to Colombia's economic success story of a rising aspirational class that enjoys unprecedented levels of prosperity. But at the level of the everyday... The underside of prosperity, as one of the people you interviewed throughout the book, Ursula, shared with you, is the crushing debt that accompanies credit to people like Ursula. How much is that prosperity worth the debt?
2: You know, I think... (laughs) I think it's worth the sacrifice. I mean, you could also think of this as a sacrificial economy. You used the language of martyrdom earlier. Um, I think sacrifice might be, might be another way to think about it. Ursula was, Ursula was willing to go into debt for her family, to, to, to live some kind of conspicuous prosperity, you know, um, that she, she would be able to take care of her people that's the kind of prosperity we're talking about here, right? This is the, the kind of prosperity I, I write also about Remedios, who is part of a microcredit program um, that's telling her like going into this kind of debt is really good. This is, this is a good kind of debt. This is the kind of debt that, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur. Um, going into this kind of small, you know, small debt is, is what you need to become uh, a prosperous entrepreneur. And her, her goals were to be able to put her kids through school that's what prosperity meant to her um, and so going into debt was a sacrifice that they were willing to do as as so many as so many of us as so many of us do all the time right we go into debt to pay for school we go into debt to buy a house we go into debt you know the the the, the financial system requires it of us Um, It requires that sacrifice, but that sacrifice isn't felt equally across social and economic classes. It's not felt equally across political classes and context either. So in Colombia, going into debt becomes a sign of faith because faith is the only thing that people have to rely on oftentimes, right? Uh, And that can be interpreted, I think, as a really political position, right? When belief belief sustains the conviction that life can be different, life can be better, life can be dignified. Um, And if debt is necessary, or you're told that debt is necessary for that, then that kind of faith can sustain a lot
0: i got one last question for you, Rebecca. Hmm. We've been speaking religious studies scholar Rebecca C. Bartell, author of Card-Carrying Christians, Debt in the Making of Free Market Spirituality in Columbia. Rebecca is assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and associate director for the Center for Latin American Studies at San Diego State University. And you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at RebeccaBartell20. That's RebeccaBartell20. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, I promise, Rebecca, is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response on Monday. We are speaking with... Uh, an attorney who practices in Pereira, Colombia, as well as in Bogota, Mm -hmm. uh, Alejandra Buitrago. And we asked her about an interview that had been done with the uh, sociologist, professor at the State University of Medellin, Forrest Hilton. Forrest Hilton had said, Mm. he's been on our show in the past, he said that this current uprising is an uprising against neoliberalism, to which Alejandra agreed. So is Colombia's economy, is neoliberalism the cause of Colombia's ongoing violence. And if that is the case, can there be peace in Colombia as long as there is financialized neoliberalism and as long as the U.S. military occupies Colombia?
2: No, <laughs> I don't think so. I, Insofar as the way in which neoliberalism has played out in, in Colombia and has been you know, the, one of the driving forces of massive displacements, there are only over 8 million people displaced internally in Colombia right now. We know that 80% of displacements happen in areas that are rich in natural resources. Um, that's a humanitarian crisis, the size of which, you know, there's no comparison in the rest of the hemisphere. Insofar as neoliberalism continues to maintain the, the logic of a trickle-down economic system that is absolutely dysfunctional, as we know, insofar as, you know, the reforms that are being, you know, um, proposed in, in the Colombian Congress as, you know, it just as an example, the lay 010, the new health um, reform bill that is trying to be passed would further financially the medical system and further privatize the medical system and further um, and, and further weaken an already broken health system that is already tied to, to economic profit for large pharmaceutical and private um, private insurance companies. And insofar as, you know, the, the, the United States, will want to maintain its uh, kind of proverbial knee on the neck of um, Latin American countries that are trying to create new forms of economic distribution and political equality. The uprisings right now are a response to neoliberalism. I agree with both Alejandra and, what was the professor from Medellin?
0: Forrest Hilton.
2: Forrest Hilton. and I think peace in Colombia requires justice, and neoliberalism makes justice and a just economic system, a just political system, a just legal system that holds people accountable. Um, that's that's going to be difficult. That's going to be difficult uh, insofar as there's not a, a you know a radical redistribution of, of wealth and, um, an adherence to the commitments that were made by the Santos government in the peace agreements with the FARC. Another reason that people are, are uprising is because the violence has continued under a different name. They, you know, there's the talk of the war being over. Well, the war technically has changed. The violence has continued, right? Hundreds of human rights defenders have been killed. Hundreds of land defenders have been killed and those are all tied to also um, the economic interests in the land, the richness of the land, the distribution of wealth, and all those issues. So I think peace in Colombia will be difficult. There's a, there's a saying uh, in, in Colombia, um, sin pan no hay paz. If, no, if there's no bread, if there's no justice, there's not food for the people, there will be no peace. It's sort of the Colombian version of no justice, no peace. And I think that's that's true. And that's why you're seeing millions of people every day for two weeks. In spite of all of the violence and the bloodshed and uh, and the threats from from the police and the military and the government, um, they're going to continue. Right. Ya basta. That's Colombians have had enough. And there's and I think there's also faith in that uprising. There's faith in the resistance.
0: Well, I hope that faith comes to fruition. Rebecca, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really, really appreciate you being on our show today. Rebecca Bartel, again, is author of Card-Carrying Christians, Debt and the Making of Free Market Spirituality in Columbia, which we have only skimmed the surface of. This is a fascinating book. You should be very proud of your work. This is really great, and our listeners should check it out. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter, at RebeccaBartel20. Thanks so much for being on our show.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right, great. So I'm going to bug you in the future to have you back on.
2: Absolutely. Anytime. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Yep, me too. Take
0: care. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash this is hell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will find all the ways you can support your friends here at This Is Hell. And if you're wondering why the Columbia uprising isn't getting all that much play on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, it's because the solution to the problem is ending U.S.-imposed neoliberalism and ending the U.S. military occupation of Colombia, And those are two things that mainstream establishment corporate media never want to to discuss. The real N-word for the media here in the U.S. is neoliberalism, and they will never, ever suggest that the United States is occupying nearly the entire world militarily. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live-streaming host Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from Hell is, What did you? Get, why did you get kicked out of the... <laughs> Why did you get kicked out of the commune? What got out? you kicked out? What got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? Richard, please share with us some more of our listeners' answers to this week's yes. question from hell.
1: David Z says prankishly, crossing out the G in goat milk.
0: <laughs> Those pranks. Pranks will get you kicked out of the commune every time.
1: Caveats answers when cleaning the sink, I misappropriated the ethnic cleanser. Oh Jesus. Amanda L. says, I got kicked out for smoking weed in my bedroom. Worst punk house ever. (laughs) What got you kicked out of the commune? Stephen M. says, preferring volume two over volume three of Das Kapital.
0: (laughs) That's so stupid. That does sound like the kind of thing that would get you kicked out of the commune. (laughs)
1: Nick E answers, I ate the last bologna and drank the last beer.
0: Sweet. Great combination, by the way.
1: Wally R answers, I refused to make a donation to my current alderman.
0: <laughs> That's some lousy commune you're in. That's a big commune.
1: <laughs> Andrea T answers, sleeping through the co op meeting a fifth time. <laughs> And conversely, letting go of stress and eating so many damn vegetables allowed me to connect with my peers late into the night. But the homemade moonshine is just too smooth. Too <laughs> smooth. Too good to, too good to last.
0: Right. Wow. I know, do you know somebody who was in a co-op or commune co-op, whatever it was, right. and they kept falling asleep during the meetings, and he was asked to eventually leave. <laughs> what
1: got you kicked out of the commune? Kent C. Answers, the autocratic machinations of bulbous and demented cranial eph- ephemera. Ephemeral? Uh, ephemeral. Ephemera.
0: <laughs> oh, ephemera. Wow. That's some fancy temporary
1: words there. Devon B. Answers, highly performative public tantric masturbation slash Gregorian throat singing.
0: <laughs> Jesus. That will definitely get you kicked out of the county, let alone the commune.
1: Philip A answers the Dawes Act. <laughs>
0: All right. Everybody can look that one up. That's D A W E S.
1: And what got you kicked out of the commune? Bradley R answers microwaving fish in the break room. <laughs> Gross. Definitely a kick out offense. Tinan S <laughs> answers passing out flyers for the cult across the street. <laughs> That's good. And just a few more. So okay. what got you kicked out of the commune? Brandon S. answers, wasn't cool with recycling everyone's poop to fertilize our food crops. That's disgusting. And Simon S. answers, after years of, report, of reporting valuable information back to the man, someone blew my deep cover, and also they made me take out take all my children with me.
0: All right. Any more? One more. Last okay.
1: one. Daniel... L answers my girlfriend's girlfriend's boyfriend's wife. That's what got him kicked out of the commune.
0: <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Torchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment. It's Jeff and the Jews again. Richard, please, sh- well, I'm sorry, uh, tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at, uh, here at thisishell.com. podcast later at the exact same place, and you can find it on social media and blah, blah, blah. Do we know who's going to be on tomorrow's show? We do not. The Jeff yes, <laughs> goes, goes back to <laughs> disputed territory. <sighs> Jeffy, Jeffy It's going to cause us so much trouble I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show Podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz Producing today's show is Richard Norwood Thanks to Rebecca Bartell, our guest Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guests. With my most sincere apologies Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor This is Hell